Our second scripture lesson is from the book of Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell among them, they will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and be their God. God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. This is holy wisdom, holy word. Thanks be to God. We are at a time of beginnings and endings and new beginnings. This is the end of our sermon series on the Apostles' Creed. And next week, we will celebrate Pentecost, the beginning of the early church. And yet, it will be Shannon's last day in worship with us, another ending. Beginnings and endings and beginnings again. There's a beautiful prayer in the Book of Common Worship to use as a blessing in times like this. It begins, Holy God, you are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. All of our beginnings and endings are rooted in your love. As we approach the end of the Apostles' Creed today, we can remember that we've been talking about this creed for three months. There's a lot inside and under and behind this creed. Each phrase is a doorway into a whole room of meaning. It took 700 years for the creed to develop into the form we recite today. Before that, different versions of the creed were used, often at baptisms, as a kind of summary of the faith. The creed evolved through those early years, early centuries of Christianity, both in the words that were used in the creed and the meanings and the interpretations of what those words meant. In earliest times, for example, God the Father was understood to mean God the Creator, the Father of the world, created the world. God was understood to be the divine parent of everything. But by the beginning of the third century, people began to speak of how God is like a father to each person. God the Father wasn't just the creator of everything. God was understood to be our Father. Then in the fourth century, when controversy broke out about the Trinity, the emphasis shifted 
in order to emphasize how God is Jesus' father. And Jesus is God's son, and the Holy Spirit is the spirit of both of them. This shifted the focus of the creed more to that relationship between the three aspects of the Trinity. As understandings of the fatherhood of God shifted at one point the phrase, maker of heaven and earth, was added to the creed to reinforce that original understanding of God as creator. I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth. Human understandings about things change as we grow as a society and as a world. And those changing understandings are reflected in the history of our creeds and our confessions of faith. Christianity is, in some ways, a centuries-long conversation about meaning, and we're invited into that conversation. Faith is not a simple or simplistic thing. It is dynamic. Similar shifting conversations happened in regard to the second part of the creed and the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. We say in the creed that we believe that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. Early interpretations emphasized that this demonstrated Jesus' humanity. He was born of a woman, just like all of us. But later, this was invoked to show his divinity by emphasizing that Christ was conceived by the Holy Ghost and miraculously born to a virgin. Now, we're in the third part of the creed, taking a look at those things that happen by the power of the Holy Spirit. Join me in saying this part about the Holy Ghost. Join in when it clicks in. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. The Holy Ghost also called the Holy Spirit, is the third person of the Trinity. And all of these things in this part of the creed happen by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit flows through us all, binding us together in the universal church and all the everyday saints like you and me who make up the church. I sometimes like to think of the Holy Spirit as God whispering to our hearts or God giving us an impulse or an idea or a longing to use our God-given gifts for the good of the world. The Holy Spirit knows our prayers before we speak them and even before we have words for them, which is how the Spirit can intercede on our behalf, as Scripture says. The Holy Spirit is God with us today in non-tangible form, yet moving us, nudging us. The Spirit gives us power to create, to persevere, to serve, and to heal. The Spirit inspires us. Do you hear that? To inspire is to take in the Spirit. God God inspires us for the first time when God puts the breath of life into us and gives us life. 
The Holy Spirit is God, just as the Creator is God and the Redeemer is God. This is also an understanding that evolved over time. It wasn't until the late fourth century that the church officially proclaimed that the Holy Spirit is together and equal in all ways to the Creator and the Redeemer, the Father and the Son. But even before that, the Holy Spirit was affirmed in early versions of the creed, when it was used at baptisms as a kind of outline of the faith that was being professed. It was in and through baptism in the early church that sins were forgiven and the newly baptized rose from the waters as a new person. In baptism, we speak about the symbolism of dying with and being resurrected with Jesus Christ, we go under the water into death, and we rise up again into new life. Of course, here we do it at our church with sprinkles, but it's the same symbolism. In baptism, we are made new. In baptism, we clothe ourselves with Christ, and Christ was all about forgiveness. On the day of his resurrection, according to John's gospel, one of the first things that Jesus did was give the Holy Spirit to his disciples and tell them to forgive. Jesus appeared to the disciples in a locked room where they were hiding in fear. In John, we read, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Once again, the disciples inhaled the inspiration. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and sent to bring forgiveness to anybody and everybody. They were sent to baptize in the name of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and to forgive. In forgiveness, we are healed. To believe in the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting means to believe in transformation. It means to believe in healing, ultimate and infinite healing. Now to speak of resurrection and eternal life, we have to speak about death. And that is a delicate thing. Most of us are afraid of death, either our own death or the death of our loved ones. Many of us have lost loved ones and we know the depths of grief. To speak of our hope in resurrection and our hope in eternal life should never be used to judge our grief or anyone's grief. Our hope is not meant to avoid or avert the real and reasonable human experience of grief in response to loss. Grief is part of life, and it's something we must go through we can't go over it or around it. If we try, it's likely to jump out and surprise us or squeak out, sneak out sideways and hurt the people around us. We approach grief 
and fears of death with tenderness, knowing that these are healthy human responses to painful parts of life. There's a beautiful talk by Irish priest John O'Donohue called Love is the Only Antidote to Fear. In it, he talks about the many things of which we are afraid, one big fear being the fear of death. O'Donohue found a meaningful metaphor for death when he was thinking about birth. He said, what if we got it all wrong about death? What if we've got it backwards? We think of death as an ending, but what if it's a beginning, like birth is a beginning? He describes an imaginary conversation with a baby before it's born. If we could talk to a baby and tell it what it's about to go through, it might go something like this, O'Donohue suggests. We'd say, listen, baby, here's the scoop. First, you're about to be expelled from the shelter of the womb where you have been formed. Second, you will be pushed along a passage where you will feel at every moment like you are being smothered. Third, you'll arrive out into a vast vacancy that is cold and bright, probably filled with merciless light. Fourth, the cord that connects you to the mother heart will be cut. Fifth, no matter how close you ever come to anyone in your life afterwards, you will always be deeply alone. Sixth, you're going on a journey for which there is no map. Seventh, you can't turn back. Eighth, anything can happen to you on the journey. If we could tell this to a baby, we can imagine they might well panic. They might say, oh, it's been so great in here, but it sounds like now I'm going to die. But really, they're about to be born. Perhaps death is also like this, O'Donohue says. We only see the destructive part of it, but really, we're being born again, he says, in a way that the loneliness of space and time no longer have a hold over us. In this new life, there's no loneliness. And this brings to mind some of Jesus' teachings about eternal life. In the Gospel of John, Jesus makes long prayers to God on the night of his betrayal and arrest before he goes out to the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples. First, he tells his disciples that they are about to be scattered. And it will seem that they left Jesus alone. But he is not alone, he says, because he and God the Father are one. God is with him and he is with God. Then Jesus prays that all people may have eternal life. And he defines eternal life in this very interesting way. When I found this scripture, I had to read it again and again. And this is eternal life, Jesus says, addressing God the Father. This is eternal life, that they may know you. No more loneliness. No more being scattered. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent.
Jesus oddly speaks of himself in the third person here. In John's gospel, this eternal life begins in this life. It's a quality of life in which we know and are known by God. Jesus' prayer goes on to describe a radical togetherness, a unity with God and Christ. The glory that you have given me, he prays, I have given them so that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become completely one so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. This is the beginning of eternal life. And this is a promise that is everlasting. In Isaiah, we read that God will swallow up death forever and will wipe away the tears from all faces. And in Revelation, we read that God will dwell among mortals and will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. The promises are repeated and we are reminded, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, God says. Sometimes birth may feel like an ending, but it is, of course, also a beginning. And we fear that death may be only an ending, but perhaps it is also the beginning of freedom and love and union with God. This doesn't diminish our grief, nor should it, but perhaps it reminds us of God's love. Because as the Book of Common Worship reminds us, all of our endings and our beginnings are rooted in that steadfast and eternal love that God has for each of us and for us as the Church, the communion of saints. And so may we be inspired by that love, the holy breath of God, the spirit of forgiveness, and the promise of new life, eternally known, known by, and knowing God. May it be so. Amen.